a poem on Zalabia. I saw him at the crack of dawn frying Zalabia, looking like tubes of reed, delicate and thin. The oil I saw boiling in his pan was like the hitherto elusive alchemy. The batter he threw into the pan, looking like silver, would instantly transform into lattices of gold. This is Nawal Nasrallah reciting a poem by the Abbasid era poet Ibn Rumi on the sugary treat Zalabiya. Nawal is an award-winning food historian of the Arab world and translator of major medieval Arabic cookbooks hailing from Baghdad, Egypt and Al-Andalus. On season two of Instant Coffee, we are exploring everything related to food in the Middle East, which is why we wanted to speak to Nawal. I'm Rival Sleman Haidar. And I'm Nadine Almanaski. And together we want to understand how food is shaping people's writing, thinking and organizing in the region. Every episode, we bring you a conversation between a guest and a colleague of ours at the center. On this episode, Taif al-Khudairi had a conversation with Nawal about her historical research into Iraqi cooking from the time of the Babylonians until now, and how food has changed, but also, more importantly, in some ways remained the same. Taif is a research assistant at the LSE Middle East Center. She works on the post-2003 political system in Iraq. Hi, Nawal. Thanks for joining us today. I'm very excited to speak to you about your books and your work on Middle Eastern cuisine. Um, So first of all, I wanted to talk about your book, The Lights from the Garden of Eden. Um, So in this book, you talk a lot about the cultures that surrounded you and the food that you grew up with in Iraq. So I was wondering if you could maybe um, tell us a little bit more about this. Thank you, Tay, for having me. I'm really glad to join your group. Uh, for this discussion of my favorite subject. Uh, You asked about the food I grew up in Baghdad, and I can tell you that uh, it was a a rich, we had a rich menu, varied. Of course, the uh, main dishes were uh, rice and stew. That was the daily staple, and which might sound boring, at the, when you first, uh, you know, uh, know that it was, uh, we have it every day, but variety comes with the, the kinds of vegetables we use, kind of cuts of meat, kinds of rice, etc. And then in addition to those uh, uh, daily uh, staples, we also had a lot of dishes that require uh, more, uh, more work, such as the stuffed, the rolled, uh, we didn't have them every day, but we were treated to them like once a week or something. In the book, you talk about your neighbors who are of different faiths. So you talk about your Jewish neighbors and your Christian neighbors and the kind of food that um, they introduced you to. So could you talk a little bit about this as well? Well, you know, I grew up in Baghdad, which is a kind of uh, multi-ethnic uh, 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 you know, society. Um, in our on our street, I remember that we had some Jewish neighbors uh, from whom we uh, were introduced to the uh, uh, Tibet uh, dish, the very traditional dish. Uh, from our Kurdish neighbors, I learned about the parda palau, which is a very uh, uh, nice dish of rice, spicy rice with meat enclosed in a crust of bread. We also learned from our neighbors from Mosul. Uh, how to make the uh, the the bulgur uh, kubba? We learned. I mean, we also. My family comes from uh, Basra, which is famous for its uh, spicy food. So my mother always used to treat us with those spicy uh, foods, like mushroom, like fish. 
living in Baghdad, I got acquainted acquainted with all those, uh, if you know, influences on the Iraqi cuisine, and uh, we enjoyed the bounties of, uh, you know, the uh, what is there in our country and uh, around it. And, and how how do these memories and experiences how have they influenced the kind of work that you've done now? I I really, uh, you know. Uh, started to become aware of so many uh, dishes that are uh, being cooked uh, outside my family, which enabled me to give a well-rounded picture of uh, the, uh, you know, of cooking in Iraq in general, from the north to the south. Because as you know, Iraq is, you know, geographically is different from, you know, the the mountainous north, the flat. Uh, 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 middle and of course we have the Basra which is uh, in the south the seaport which is uh, from ancient times it was uh, an important port for transport for the transportation of spices of goods so with all this variety of course uh, we have a you know a, a wonderful cuisine and and also a really big theme in your work is the kind of continuities and the differences between sort of uh, Mesopotamian dishes and more sort of recent Iraqi cuisine so I wonder whether you could also talk a little bit about this when I started writing my book uh, it was just about uh, uh, you know a regular cookbook about the cooking I know, but when I started to uh, when I started my research, I became aware of a long tradition that goes all the way back to uh, Mesopotamian times. And first of all, I discovered the Babylonian tablets, and then I discovered two Baghdadi cookbooks from the Abbasid period, and I was really amazed. You know, I was in a very unique situation where I can see my cuisine developing and evolving from ancient times to the present. And when I examined those uh, resources, I was really surprised at the things that remained, the things that did not change, and the aspects, of course, that changed with the, uh, with the, coming, with the coming of the new uh, crops from the new world. From ancient times, of course, the three Babylonian tablets, uh, I, I discovered that, like in ancient times, their staple was this too. For fat, it's interesting that they were fond of the uh, fat tail sheep. They, you know, they take from the they take from the uh, uh, Middle Eastern. It was uh, it was a famous Middle Eastern uh, uh, breed of sheep. They were uh, famous for their uh, large tails, all chunks of fat, you know, pure fat. Uh, to the extent that when Herodotus visited uh, Babylonia, he was impressed by the huge size of the uh, of the tails of the sheep there. And of course, you know, uh, Herodotus he exaggerated, so sometimes exaggerates. So he said. They were so large that they had to tie them to uh, carriages so that they, they, the sheep would pull, would, you know, it would be easy for the sheep to pull his tail being, <laughs> being hauled on, the, on this carriage. Not only that, not only the stools, I also, there's also a, a Babylonian tablet which gives us recipes for uh, bird pies. Like a pie, it has to the bottom crust, it has the top crust. In between, there is a flavorful, you know, like bechamel sauce. We make bechamel sauce, it's white sauce with the, with the, with the birds. 
And uh, the recipe says you take the, uh, the pie as it is covered to the diners. And it is my expectation that and when they dine, they will uncover the top crust. And to their surprise, they would find this beautiful, you know, those beautiful birds in this swimming in this uh, flavorful uh, bechamel-like uh, sauce. When I started digging into the medieval uh, cookbooks, I was also surprised at how much survived from those uh, from this ancient cooking. It was this too, as in ancient times, and they had their own elaborate dishes. So it, I realized that showmanship that we have today in Iraq, they are deeply rooted in our uh, culinary traditions from ancient times. Um, there was a pride in what they cooked. What I also find, found, you know, uh, 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 that survived is the, uh, the knack for uh, mixing our spices, mixing our herbs. It's not only one spice, it's not only black pepper or something, but a combination of uh, uh, spices and herbs. This I can I can see this in the in the Babylonian recipes, in the uh, two surviving Baghdadi cookbooks, and in our uh, cooking today. And also the importance of a bread. Bread, I was, I'm really uh, amazed at how little bread changed. Like what, how many, how many centuries ago they, they baked bread, simple bread, uh, flour, water, and of course some, some yeast, and they cooked it and they baked them in the tanur, which is the domed uh, clay oven. In the two medieval cookbooks, they also used the tanur. They called it Tanur. And there is even a recipe in uh, Al Warraq's 10th century cookbook, Baghdadi 10th century cookbook, which is called Khubz al Ma, which is water bread, because it is so simple, you know, just the basic ingredients. And the recipe describes the way it is, uh, uh, the dough is made, the, the way it is uh, baked, and it is exactly like the way we cook our bread today in Iraq, we also call it Khubz al-Ma. So there are things, you know, that do not change, do not need to change. But also, of course, I saw some changes because in the, uh, of course, with the discovery of the new world, they brought the potatoes and what's more importantly, they brought the tomatoes. In the 19th century, uh, the region, the Middle Eastern region started to uh, cook with the, the tomatoes. And this changed the look of this of, of our stews. I mean, as essentially the stew remained the, the same, but the looks of it changed. It's red now. Uh, they used to sour their uh, stews with lemon juice, pomegranate juice, all kinds of food. Sometimes they add vinegar. Uh, they used to add also something which is called murri which is a kind of fermented uh, liquid sauce, something like soy sauce. Tomatoes also have this kind of umami uh, taste. So instead of the murri, they added, of course, now we have the tomato, which, uh, you know, plays the same role. And they used to color, they, they, they used to love to color their stews with saffron. They love the color yellow, you know, golden yellow in their stews. Now, of course, it is red with the tomatoes. So without mori and without saffron, now we have our stew 
looks different, but essentially, basically, it's the same. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question before we move on to your second book. So you said that you came across these uh, tablets that had recipes on them. So I was wondering, what language were these tablets in and how did you go about reading them? The three of them, uh, they are clay tablets. Uh, they are filed clay tablets and there are inscriptions of them that is called Akkadian, which is the language of the ancient Babylonians and the Sumerians. I cannot read Akkadian, but they were deciphered, deciphered and... Uh, that's how you know I was able to know the content of the of these uh, cuneiform tablets. The tablets, of course, now at at the Babylonian uh, collection at Yale University, and I had the pleasure of going there and holding them in my hands. Oh wow! Uh, I went there, and the curator, uh, you know, took one of the tablets out of the cupboard. And uh, she gave it to me. I held it in my hand. It was so nice, you know, to touch thousands of years, a document, a culinary document. It was so smooth with all those inscriptions. But of course, I couldn't read them, but I know what they are about. I know that sounds like an amazing experience. It was indeed. It was, you know, it was like a dream came true. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds really beautiful. Um, and also that you actually got to hold them. I assume that usually this isn't allowed. So, um, And this links nicely to your other book, which is called Annals of the Khalifa's Kitchens, which is a translation of Ibn Sayyar al-Warraq's 10th century Baghdadi cookbook. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, al-Warraq and what his intention was through putting this cookbook together? Yeah, first of all, this book is the, the first and the, the first book that has come down, down to us from uh, worldwide, from the medieval times. It's really an important book and it is very impressive. It's a huge volume. It has 132 chapters, different varieties of foods. Not only food, but it, he touches on all things. He touches on rules of, uh, you know, dietetic rules. He, he touches on... Uh, properties of food. The first chapters in the book, they are not about recipes. They are about uh, like a, a, a regimen of, uh, you know, a healthy regimen mm -hmm. of uh, having foods, getting to know the properties of foods. This was because, uh, I mean, this caused that the book was not recognized as a cookbook when it was first uh, uh, you know, uh, cataloged. They thought it was a book on medicine because it was dealing with all those, uh, you know, subjects. And then, of course, we have we come the to a series of uh, uh, chapters on the recipes, actual recipes. At the end of the book, there is a chapter on, of course, after you eat, you wash your hands. It's called Ushnan, Mahla, Bunk several, uh, you know, preparations mm -hmm. to remove the greasy odors of foods from their, from your hands, because as we know, they used to use their, you know, the fingers, the three fingers of the hand to eat the dishes. Eating was a communal experience, so they had to share large bowls of food, and of course, this gave rise to certain regulations, certain etiquettes, when you share a meal with some with, with, with a group of people, you have to pay, to pay attention to what you do uh, when you eat. There's this chapter about etiquette of food. 
when he, there's the caution that the eaters should not unfasten their belts. That is to make <laughs> to make room for, <laughs> for what they eat. And then, of course, the last chapter is about sleeping. It's about sleeping because after they apparently after they uh, they they had their meals, of course, they enjoyed a nap. So when is the proper time to enjoy a nap? And enjoy a nap. On what side should you sleep when you, <laughs> well, so that after after a meal, etc. Yeah, it sounds very indulgent. This uh, this book. It is. It is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, I wanted to ask you a little bit about where this name Al Warak comes from and why uh, these kinds of cookbooks or um, books about food and the etiquette around food were so popular at the time. Uh, his name is Al Warak. It is derived from Warak, which is paper. Al Warak, this nickname tells us that he he used to deal with the uh, paper business. Uh, there were uh, there were special uh, markets marketplaces for uh, dealing with the stationery, with the bookstores. Uh, they were called Souq Al Waraqin, uh, where you find uh, you know where you can buy books. But not only buying them, you can hire uh, you can hire an entire library for yourself. You stay there for days, and you read all the books you like, and uh, you know that's how they gained knowledge. So I imagine that Al Warraq, he, we know nothing about him. Everything is we what we say about him is based on internal evidence and on his name. His name indicates that he used to deal with the with these kids. He, he might have, you know, he might have been a copyist, a scribe. Um, he might have, uh, as we know from the book, he, he used to write, uh, you know, compile cookbook, uh, compiled books. Why he wrote this book? Well, we know this from internal evidence. In his introduction, we learn that he was commissioned to write it. Uh, an important person commissioned him to write the book. He wanted him to write a cookbook about caliphs, what the princes, important people ate at the time, and uh, put them together in a book. From the book, we learn that Al Warraq, indeed, he uh, anthologized for us the uh, the Abbasidic, which is cuisine of his time, the 10th century. Not only his time, but also he goes back to the 9th century. So he did he did us really a great favor by preserving uh, these uh, books for us. He mentioned uh, in name about 20 books. He mentions 100 names of people who uh, participated in these activities, either uh, writing cookbooks or cookbooks were written for them. It's really a wonderful window into the uh, into the uh, you know into the Abbasid world during this uh, this period, which is peopled with with all those interesting people, anecdotes, poems, all these things. It it, it is alive with all the with with all the you know with all sorts of information. It's not only I mean it's really an understatement to say that it is a cookbook. It is not that. It is it is beyond a cookbook. Thank you so much, Noel. I really enjoyed speaking to you and learning about uh, your work. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Instant Coffee. This is brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre and is produced by me, Nadine Almanaski. And me, Riba Sleiman Haider. Join us every other Tuesday for a new episode of Instant Coffee. 
To learn more about Noelle's work, follow the links in the podcast description. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to like, comment and give us five stars. You know we deserve it. Thank <laughs> you.